0: coming at you live from the Industry Plant podcast. Today we're talking about existentialism, Nietzsche and Camus. We'll attempt to define existentialism through its historical context and diverge into some subtopics along the way. Joining me is lifelong armchair philosopher Alex Dye, who is a Nietzsche scholar as a pastime and presents knowledge in an accessible manner. Also joining me today is Joseph, who you may remember from last episode to talk more about Camus and absurdism. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. So how have you been lately? I haven't gotten to talk to you in a while.
1: Yeah, I've been really good. Like everything in my life is going really swell. Um, I thought online classes were going to be worse than they were, but so far this semester is going on, going off to like a really good start. And I'm probably at the best place I've ever been in my life. I'm uh, super optimistic.
0: I'm like really productive. And, that's actually, um that's yeah. really good to hear because like I remember like the the on- online class hell <laughs> that that was f s w oh oh yeah um the
1: like I'm taking a biology course that is functionally identical to i don't know the online history class at f s w and i i bombed that history class i just could not keep up with, with the workload, just all the discussions and busy work and stuff, but I have not had the same experience i've been you know staying on top of things and uh yeah, I'm, yeah. i am I I've picked up like a bunch of hobbies that i really enjoy i've been reading like way more and um i don't know i'm just like my mindset's super positive
0: that that's actually Very great productive. to hear because like to to i guess put it like in the most vague terms like times have been worse
1: <laughs> times have been worse for sure, and um, I feel like that that actually would help me in the discussion with existentialism um, because I, I kind of consider myself a case of existentialism going right or like a success story
0: of existentialism. Would you consider yourself like an optimistic nihilist? Because I remember that, that whole kind of uh, self-definition from a while ago. Yeah, I, I
1: think... Um, to a layman that's that's a fine description but and i do call myself a nihilist sometimes depending on the context and who i'm speaking to but in general if you don't really understand nihilism the way that i do it can be kind of like a misnomer um right because i uh i do not believe in nothing i believe that truth is subjective but there's definitely things i care about there's like meaning i find in the world even if it's just limited to my sort of worldview. And um, so nihilism to me does not, I don't use it to imply that I believe in nothing. Some people might, a lot of people do, but to me, it's just sort of rejection of any external absolutes.
0: Yeah, I think what people, i kind of like the middle school definition of nihilism, you know, the one that was in all the memes back in the day, that's kind of like... um, really what people are talking about almost is like extreme skepticism.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And um, there's something to say about that definition of nihilism, especially since Nietzsche, who is generally considered the capital N nihilist, he right. considered himself an anti-nihilist. So depending on how you interpret Nietzsche's philosophy or my own philosophy, we could both be called both nihilists and anti-nihilists. It just depends on uh, the context,
0: right? And weirdly uh, the en- audience. Weirdly enough, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that problem in particular comes from. But a, a, another example of that occurring is like scholars and I guess like the public. Um, if you want to, if you want to talk about Camus, Camus is like referred to as an existentialist, even though he himself kind of decried existentialism. And said that he didn't want to be associated with it at all. And I'm not sure how much, like, like Nietzsche and Camus, uh, I guess, like, hatred of being lumped into a category with other people who had philosophies similar but not exactly. Like, there's like, uh, does it make sense? Like, they wanted to create their own, I suppose, categories.
1: Yeah, Nietzsche was definitely against isms. But as far as the, I would say, two proto existentialists, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard that term wasn't even really around in their time. Right. The first person to self-describe themselves as an existentialist was Sartre. So,
0: right. Um I'm not going to be saying his name with the French pronunciation just because uh I'm afraid I'm going to hurt my uh my vocal cords, but that's fine. I can carry us both. <laughs> on that as that front. Right. So, how and... would Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, no, never mind. Uh I don't really have anything. I was going. So, like, when you define nihilism, you what? What is the difference if there is a difference between nihilism and existentialism? Hmm. I think uh, they're just two separate categories
1: that can overlap. Um, I think a lot of nihilism implies existentialism, like existentialism. Right really focuses on personal experiences and, and personal meaning and stuff like that. And I think nihilism, at least in the sense that I mean it does essentially the same thing. So in a way, my nihilism and my existentialism are almost synonymous.
0: Right. And But
1: I, th- I think nihilism just gets more of the meat and potatoes across than saying existentialism, because that's a really hard, term to define
0: it's very broad very general so so do you think existentialism is is more so uh i suppose like a category while uh i suppose nihilism is a subcategory of existentialism or is it like a venn diagram situation it's like a venn diagram right situation a venn diagram that's almost a circle okay yeah that makes sense um so, like, how did you get into nihilism and existentialism particularly? Um, well, in my late teenage years, I
1: uh, started losing my Christian faith. And, right. of course, the first thing that moves in with the loss of faith is just sort of doubt of everything, doubt of the institutions and the world, um, disbelief in categories like justice and truth and whether they have any real tangible assets and just widespread doubt and despair that everything is an illusion. And even though people tend to think about Nietzsche as a nihilist, when I started reading Nietzsche, it like completely changed my mindset about those things. And I was able to come to sort of a healthy place, Where I recognized that yes, all these things that I've been told are just parts of the world, and this is how the world works, was like a lie, but that's okay, and there doesn't need to be any truth. And some of the most valuable things in life are our lies we tell ourselves. So
0: I just kind of reconciled that. So, do you think. Sort of existentialism, I guess, as far as like existential dread in the sense that you seem to be talking about, do you think that comes from like almost like the psychological uh, kind of notion where as a child, and uh, I guess as a teenager too, you kind of accept the world as it is uh, without really questioning, I guess the institutions and the ideas that you're given? And then over time, eventually you grow to realize uh, there's there's theories of moral development where you realize that uh, it's not actually the laws that are good or bad it's the uh the ideas that can be good or bad and or just exist as they are i suppose
1: yeah and I'll, I'll use a analogy from nietzsche because i think it's really apt and you could sort of think that you know christianity or modern day secular humanism which is basically christianity without god i hope that's not controversial i i hope it's pretty clear that the values of secular humanism are very christian and uh principle those values are just sort of like the sun that the world the mind rotates around and when you sort of realize that the sun is illusory or there is no sun it's like the world is unchained and it just goes hurtling through the void so i think that's the source of existential dread, suddenly this thing that your life was based around is gone and you're in a philosophical freefall, so to how, speak.
0: How does that affect your kind of perception of, I suppose, particularly institutions n- and not religious ones, but I suppose like governmental institutions, because there's, there's a lot of overlap between, I guess, religious ideas and governmental ideas that want to be taken as fact.
1: My attitudes towards institutions are very cynical. The focus of my philosophy is the lives and actions of individual people. I think institutions just by their very nature are, are not sustainable, no matter how hard we try to perfect our ideology or you know put in safeguards against abuse, I think, Institutions are a band-aid for the problems that face humanity, by and large.
0: And is that and they don't fix because, the root causes? And is that because that? institutions create like a like a innate power system? Um. Yeah, and
1: it's also because no matter how well you design a system, the machinery of the system is still at the whims of the people in charge. So even if you make some sort of bureaucracy like let me go back a little bit so if you have some terrible government you might have some benevolent ruler who knows how to put things together and this is hypothetical i don't think there have been any like true benevolent you know autocrats but just say you build some sort of system that gives this person power because he knows how to get things done and he can fix the problems. Well, then once he dies, you have this vacuum, and more fallible mortals just kind of move in. So then right. you have authoritarian governments, and then you, you might try to build some sort of bureaucratic system where decision-making power falls less into the hands of single individuals, and it's more the powers in the structure itself. Well, then once that generation of bureaucrats dies, parasites can move in and. They just have all sorts of effects on society, and um, the structures that we build around people tend to sort of presuppose that they're benevolent, and there's always going to be people who are willing to abuse the system, no matter how perfect, in theory, the system is designed.
0: Right. Do you think there's a particular, I guess, governmental institution uh, of all the ones in American society, have you have you given any thought to uh, whether or not there's one particular one that um, that causes the most harm, I guess, to the individual in its nature of existing? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say
1: the legislative okay. branch is probably the most harmful because that's a great example of what I'm talking about, trying to make some sort of impersonal system uh, that relies less on the power of individuals. But of course that system can be manipulated and there's an inherent problem with trying to have a perfectly like impersonal system because people are not Im- impersonal right. Impersonal decisions affect persons badly. And um It also, you know, trying to make such like an impersonal system shifts the focus away from our process of selecting leaders because you're not so much concerned with how we pick leaders themselves. We're more interested in the structure, so that just means all kinds of bad leaders can find themselves in public office and
0: manipulating the system to their own ends. So in I guess in all three of the I I suppose branches of the US government you have sort of these I mean you have aspects of like law making and, and evaluation of laws. But you, are you are what you're saying is sort of in the way that existentialism, I guess, prescribes that one makes their own truths. Uh of course, so to speak, that in a way legislators or politicians make uh they're they're making their own uh I guess Individual policies about justice that can or cannot be at- applicable to other people? Is that the problem? Yeah, definitely
1: to an extent. Uh, in our country, people legislate based on how they think the world should be with little regard to the practical, messy realities. Like laws tend to be black and white or create some sort of model that all situations should be viewed through, which is fine if you have a platonic sort of philosophy, but if you're an existentialist and you sort of embrace the very personal nature of truth and reality, it just falls flat, So that approach anyway.
0: In that way, how does existentialism solve, I guess, problems, and and what is existentialism trying to solve besides existential dread? existentialism really is not so
1: concerned with people as a whole. It's concerned with people as individuals and individual experiences. So existentialism encourages people to find their own truths and act in the ways that they see fit. And, and that way, I think that's the most direct way to solve problems rather than, Having some sort of institutional solution.
0: There's like the famous short quote of Nietzsche where, you know, he says God is dead and all that. But do you think that, I, I suppose, um, uh, that, like, what is the broader historical context of that? Because you talk about uh, sort of in your own life, the, the decline of, uh, I guess, Christian faith being the cause of your own existentialism. Was there some broader decline of? I guess Christianity or religion generally that led to, yeah. the life to existentialism.
1: Yeah, people again associate Nietzsche as, you know, the first nihilist or whatever, but in Nietzsche's personal view, he thought that nihilism was already widespread and he did all of his philosophy against that. And in his view, the science of the day, because we had sort of perfected the scientific method by that point, had sort of made it impossible for any, you know, truly any truly consistent person to accept religion. So he thought that God had already been killed. He wasn't heralding, you know, I have killed God. He was saying, we killed God like 100, 150 years ago, accidentally. And we're just now about to see the consequences. So he, he wasn't celebrating the death of God. He didn't consider himself the murder of God. He was lamenting the death of God. And that's actually the source of the analogy I was talking about earlier, where suddenly the, the earth has been unchained and it's not orbiting around a star, it's just hurtling through the void. So the mm-hmm. context was that the death of God was very, very hard for most people and led to nihilism. The Not only the acknowledgement that there are no absolute values, but the, sort of resignation that there's no point to anything nothing matters and um that's what he meant by nihilism and that's absolutely not what i mean by nihilism
0: right do you think that i I guess the decline um in christianity i mean currently or religion generally currently what what do you make of the decline of i suppose uh organized religion and kind of the embracement of uh i guess um How would, how would it be called by, I suppose, like the Judeo-Christian society? It's called, uh, the rise of, uh, what are those? They're, they're almost cults. They're, uh, mm, like spirituality outside of religion. Um, it's a mixed
1: bag. Honestly, there is some spirituality that I respect. I think it encourages like a healthy view towards the world, but for a lot of people, it's just some way to you know, make things make sense, and it's – for a lot of people who join New Age spirituality groups, it's, it's less about the content of the beliefs themselves. They just need something to grasp on, to keep themselves from falling into nihilism. But I think it's always been that way with religion. There are right. some people who genuinely get deep into the spirituality, and for others, it's just a salve against nihilism.
0: It's like it's like philosophical escapism. It's uh, I guess in in the context of a, of absurdism, it's uh, what Camus refers to as philosophical suicide. Is just embracing a, a religion and, and embracing religious truth.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I, I think the spirituality that's most worthy of of respect is sort of spirituality that focuses on the mystery. Like I have no problem with the worship of God if God is viewed as just sort of the mystery itself, you know, the totality right. of all things, if you can accept, um, and, and find beauty and the mystery of all things and how strange and wonderful it is. If you view, if that's your view of God, I think that's like a really worthy successor to, um, spirituality of
0: old. So like, uh, What's a great example of that? Maybe Taoism would be a good example, but I know Nietzsche particularly mentions Buddhism as a philosophy that he embraces to some extent, or not a religion that he embraces, but he 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 prefers Buddhism to Christianity for sure. He thought they were actually
1: pretty similar, at least, really? you know, he Nietzsche personally admired both Jesus Christ and Buddha. He thought that uh, he really liked... Jesus's message that the kingdom of God is inside of you. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, you know, embracing, you know, things as a whole as God, you know, just if everything is God, then you're a part of God and the kingdom of God is inside of you. And he thought that Buddha was um, a really good psychologist, (laughs) but uh, he thought the movements that sprung up about Jesus of Nazareth and Buddha just, have been ultimately destructive to mankind and our worldview.
0: So we talked a little bit about, I guess, the problems that nihilism and existentialism purport to solve. But what about, what would you make of, I I suppose, like uh, the modern term for them would be like edgelords, or like people who use nihilism and existentialism in a way that's uh, self-deprecating? Or for instance, you you kind of prescribe yourself to believing uh, Sort of an optimistic nihilism. Um, mm-hmm. What about what about uh, cynical nihilism, so to speak?
1: That's a good point. And I think I'm going to introduce uh, a term that I'm going to use instead of nihilism. So, right. so I will refer to the brand of nihilism that rejects all meaning and the possibility of meaning. I'll call that nothingism.
0: Okay.
1: And I, I think that's more more apt, more plain to uh, native English speakers. So nihilism, yeah, as for edgelords and stuff, I'm not sure you can be an edgy existentialist. Why is that? Well, I think because I think what you mean by like an edgy existentialist or an edgy person who calls himself an existentialist is just – they're not really worried about the meaning of things and like the significance of things in their lives. They, they're just kind of like philosophical gladiators, so to speak. They, they just want to have like victory on a philosophical field of battle. And that really distracts from the point of existentialism, which is finding personal meaning, you know, not so much worrying about what other people are doing at all. Just focus on, living your life and finding the things that give your life meaning. And then the nothingists are edgy just by their very nature or they're depressed or potentially both. And I think they're also a form of philosophical gladiator and probably just acting out because they're afraid that if they are not constantly on the
0: offensive, then their lives will be without meaning. So I guess uh, the the edgelords, so to speak, are more nothingness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. How would you distinguish, I guess, uh, sort of something that's associated with existentialism to a certain extent, although the the idea was was along well, well before existentialism, which is determinism.
2: Because the, term, well,
0: the idea of determinism is something that brings a lot of existential dread to people, and they associate it with existentialism, is what I've found.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a way existentialism is anti-deterministic. Well, don't quote me on that. Um, there's a really good quote from Sartre, which sort of expresses the basis of existentialism, which is philosophy hitherto you know maybe the 1800s or so very much latched onto the belief that essence precedes existence like if there is a human being the Greeks or even philosophers later than that might presuppose that there's something called humanist humanness that already exists and right. to understand humans we have to we have to figure out what humanness is and sartre's formulation that no existentialism is about existence precedes essence is that just because something exists doesn't mean that there's anything inherent to it so if you're trying to understand humans in this context we we can't figure out what humanness is humanness has to be invented
0: okay no so so and humanness, humanness is a concept separate of the existence of something
1: well, has yeah, it has to be defined after the thing comes into existence. Right. So it puts the um, impetus on each other to discover what humanness means to us. We have to figure out what the essence is for us. It doesn't already have a meaning just by virtue of the fact that we exist and we're human. So this connects back to, to determinism because there's no – hold on, let me – let me think about this for a sec. No, Gather my thoughts. Um, yeah. So, if there is no essence that precedes existence, then there's not necessarily anything that forces humans to be one thing or another based on their existence. So, it's kind of kind of like opposed to determinism that certain qualities that are pre-existent determine what a thing is going to be like if that makes any sense
0: that makes a little bit of sense um, do you could you figure out uh, potentially like a more layman's way to describe that because um, e- e- that's obscure to me and I mean i'm I'm probably <laughs> pretty close to the layman <laughs> um
1: yeah I'll, I'll need a minute or
0: two no, to think fine. about that we'll, cu- we'll cut it up one minute, 37 seconds later. So, people tend
1: to fear determinism. Uh, oh, that's that's not a good start to a, a thought. This is a, a really hard thing right.
0: to, to formulate. For sure. Um, we can always nix it if you'd rather move on to, like, philosophical merit of Nietzsche-type conversation. We can come back to it. Well, maybe... Uh, since I'm
1: assuming this is not going to be included in the recording, I, I think I'd like to bounce some ideas off of you okay? and, and see what you have to contribute. So um, Nietzsche, who's considered an existentialist might be kind of considered like a determinist because he thought that like, you know, every single thing that happens is happens necessarily just because right of the things that happened before it. like each moment is driven forward by billions of years of circumstances and stuff. So to Nietzsche, the question of free will of determinism was kind of irrelevant. Like if, if you were measure like how much you know freedom we have to act on our desires, like you can't even really figure that out because how much of our desires aren't you know, just the results of our life experiences. It's kind of like an irrelevant question. So
0: it's an so it's a non-issue.
1: Existentialism. It, yeah, it's it's a non-issue. Um, so it, it's almost, in a way, a rejection of the dichotomy of, of free will and determinism. Because whether, and this is something you've said before, that like whether or not we have free will or not, it, it doesn't matter because we're gonna like live our lives as if we we do or don't it's not really gonna have much of an influence on our behavior like either free will exists and we're gonna just do the things that we're gonna do or free will doesn't exist and we're just gonna do the things that we're gonna do right? right
0: right that's almost like the 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 solipsistic kind of trap of uh you know whether or not you can you can know there's more that exists outside of yourself, like does it matter at all? Yeah, it
1: does not right. right.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing about like existentialism,
1: and existentialism is descended, philosophically speaking, from phenomenology, which is not so much concerned with the objects as they are unperceived by humans. It's just very much interested in things as they appear to humans. And then existentialism takes that just a little bit further, makes it a little more personal. So it doesn't matter if the things that we experience are real or not, we exist and we have the burden of acting as if this is all real because this is all we know. So whether or not the things are real or not in actuality, they are real to us. And that's the only thing that matters.
0: Right, Sort of in the way that uh, I guess there you you have the burden of uh, the construction of your own individual truth. Mm-hmm. how how would you how do you feel almost like, I guess with the historical context of on one hand, you have Nietzsche saying, uh, you know God is dead, and, and that's almost the um well, he's lamenting it, and that's the reason for his sort of foray into existentialism is seeing sort of the religious institution and ideology. Not satisfactory to understanding the world anymore uh, yet it's still being used um, versus sort of like Kierkegaard Christian existentialism which I'm not I'm not so sure that I'm well versed on the topic but it's it's strange to see the dichotomy between the two what you call the proto existentialist
1: I do not think there's as much of a dichotomy as it might seem because Nietzsche isn't okay atheist, and Kierkegaard's a Christian obviously, but the conclusions they come to are very similar, like Kierkegaard believes in God, or, you know, some sort of universal, and he thinks that meaning is derived for the individual by sort of embracing the universal and losing one's individuality a little bit, but he doesn't think that God is some absolute God for him is is very personal. So each person should just figure out um, what they what they think is right and then and that's what God is to each person. So it's almost like Nietzsche's view that like no matter like what you believe in, as long as it's like productive and it has meaning for you, then that's fine. So it's almost right. like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard come to the same conclusion about like what exactly, gives people meaning, and that's, you know, dissolving yourself in a little bit in something bigger, but the bigger thing is only important because it has value to you as right. an individual. They just give it, like, different names. Uh,
0: you know, actually, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, particularly, though, is there any, are there any critiques, I suppose, you know about existentialism i mean obviously there are a lot of other branches of i guess uh, particularly oh i guess a better way to enter this discussion is what are are there any ethics that existentialism entails i mean for one the kind of the necessity of building your own truths uh, Camus would say that like i mean while he's an absurdist he would say that like the the burden is on you to kind of construct your own meaning and that if you don't then that's in a way, bad. No, I, I don't think
1: there are specific ethics that are entailed by that. At least, if if what you mean is you know certain prescriptions to do this activity or avoid this activity, I think
0: that sort of thing is rejected altogether by even, existentialism. Even if the even if the activity is uh, kind of too. I suppose reject the notion that essence precedes existence in a sense. Um, or is or is that just more of a metaphysical side of it?
1: That's more of a metaphysical side. I'm not, I'm not really sure exactly what you mean. Could you phrase that differently? So we that again.
0: So I guess I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is so when when Camus or sartre or so on and so forth they give their own i I guess a good way to think about it is existentialism you would say is like a almost like a subtopic it it falls under metaphysics right um on the whole
1: that heavily depends on how you define metaphysics i'm inclined to say no but uh, i'm not going to say one definitively one way or another
0: okay so it what actually whether or not you you define it under metaphysics doesn't really matter to the question that I'm asking because I guess what I'm asking is is the notion that existence precedes essence in any way like Camus kind of imperatives that he sees existence um, precedes essence and and he draws sort of ethical conclusions for how you should live your life like for instance Nietzsche talks about how you should uh, kind of try to get away from slave and master morality, unless I'm reading that inter- incorrectly.
1: No, I think you're
0: reading that correctly. Like, do you see what I mean? Like, there's yeah, I, I, see, I see what
1: you're saying because it's like if you're saying that you know there are no hard and fast ethical prescriptions. Just do you. That in a way is is also. Um, an ethical prescription right. you can see that i don't know that's more of like a nitpicking thing it, it's just sort of right. like a philosophical gotcha like if you say that like nothing <laughs> right. has like any inherent value it's like well does that statement have any inherent value like <laughs> yeah i don't know that. it's just like what, what do you even say to that i don't think i don't think there's any productive way to like respond to something right. like that it's just like okay dude <laughs>
0: You might you might feel similar to, to this. Uh there is there was a conversation I had and it went something along the lines of um somebody said that, you know, if you if if you're if you have a sort of um I guess a moral imperative to choose a decision that in the future will give you the most freedom. Assuming that you can know, you know, the degree of freedom that each choice will bring you in the future. Uh there was this there was this gotcha moment uh, somebody had where they said uh, that in a way you wouldn't be free at all if you had a rule that dictated that you picked you know the most free choice or, or the choice that maximized your liberty and, and and that's sort of another one of those gotcha situations, do you think?
1: Yeah, it, you know it's both a gotcha, and I kind of I kind of get where he's saying because whether or not you have freedom is also kind of an irrelevant to existentialism right like existentialism has historically explored um you know how freedom feels to individuals and how especially in the modern world with all this freedom we have we still feel kind of like garbage you know a, a huge proportion of us and from the little that i know about Camus, it seems like the stranger the, one of the conflicts for the main characters just how meaningless having having freedom is so i think that like Trying to maximize freedom isn't really really the point. and like if if you can find something that restricts your freedom but gives you meaning, that that would ultimately be better.
0: okay and And there have been a lot of I suppose attacks, like whether it be on on Nietzsche or somebody who's you know more obviously uh, directly associated with uh, a, a kind of a, a line of German thinking, so to speak, like Heidegger. Mm-hmm. Uh, does i guess in a sense does the what would you say about i guess the the use of nietzsche's philosophy after his death as well of, uh, as if his, his if his own mental decline uh contributes a- anything to his to discrediting him because i know that i know like they're sort of the ad hominem attacks th- that happen whenever somebody uh has any loss of their mental faculties
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, So first of all, to answer your first question, Nietzsche's philosophy is by its very nature, like personal and an application, if people are using Nietzsche's philosophy to construct some sort of mass movement or, you know, some sort of system that will change how we live, I, th- I think that's really count contrary to the spirit of Nietzsche's philosophy. Yeah, and Nietzsche prizes somebody who sort of disagrees with him heavily, but just does their own thing more than somebody who parrots, you know, everything he says and you know wants to build, like, say, a government. Like Nietzsche's philosophy, it's less about the the content, the specific opinions. It's more it's sort of like a torch that's passed on just like sort of affirming life and being like, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do what feels right and makes my life meaningful, whatever that is.
0: So kind of like the, the misapplication of the, the, the Uber mention and and whatnot, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a fundamental, that, that fundamentally conflicts with, with Nietzsche's individualism. Well,
1: it it doesn't because Nietzsche's whole point of the Ubermensch is like he's not saying that's something that we should all strive for. He's like his view was the striving towards the Ubermensch, the striving towards some creature that that's for will a select few, right? Well, the Ubermensch does not exist. Uh, okay. He didn't consider himself an ubermensch. For him, the ubermensch was the thing that gave him life, w- w- or gave his life meaning. The ubermensch okay. was the thing that he wanted to strive for that made it all worth it. And he, he's like, if that's not what you're into doing, if that's not you know, the, the thing you kind of want to lose yourself in to give yourself meaning, then like, that's fine. Like The ubermensch is just me. This is what like, gives my life meaning, but like, you do you.
0: So so there's a complete misinterpretation that happens when when I guess somebody says that everybody should become the ubermensch or that we should create a new a new a new uh I guess civilization of only ubermensch. Yeah, a, that that's, that's
1: like a fundamental yeah. mi- misunderstanding. Uh, the ubermensch is very personal and specific to Nietzsche himself. And back to uh, your your earlier question about whether or not his like mental collapse discredits his belief. I I definitely think that there is a point to be made because his whole thing was he was fighting against the void. He was he was trying to keep himself from falling into nihilism and I guess you could view view his mental collapse ultimately as a failure like he yeah. tried to come up with a way to combat nihilism and in a sense he failed. He wasn't able to do it. Um so yeah, if you if you think that discredits Nietzsche, I I definitely see where you're you're coming from, but even if he's not like the perfect example of like how to do it, I I can't see why his his the general spirit of Nietzsche, which is, you know, find things that you love and just be be yourself like to the bitter And I don't see why that's that would be bad advice, even if he wasn't able to embody that himself. And of course, there's also you have to consider that his mental collapse could have been due to syphilis. It seemed that there is some hereditary uh, genetic issues going on. He he probably had some sort of like bipolar disorder, and it's likely that his mental collapse was just the degeneration of his brain. So he might necessarily or his personal beliefs might not have had anything to do with his collapse right but
0: also also in a sense you know i guess i guess kind of what i gathered out of what you said is like nietzsche's nietzsche's decline may show may show his own failure to adhere to the philosophy that he puts forward so to speak um if you want to interpret his mental decline that way or but, but, but that says nothing about how applicable his philosophy is to everyone else. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, we can totally, I guess, ease back into absurdism because talking mm-hmm. about Christian existentialism in no way would take us away from absurdism, where mm-hmm. I guess Camus' central conflict and I guess, the seminal work, if you want to call it that, of absurdism, uh, kind of entails uh, in part... Camus struggle against uh, kind of the mainstream Christianity that uh, wants him to presuppose a sort of meaning that he doesn't get to create for himself.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, it would also be like, I think, a good time to maybe talk about um, some of our favorite philosophical or uh, existential works.
0: All right. You can start because I'm actually not too familiar with, I guess, Nietzsche in particular outside of... I believe I read the Genealogy of Morals, uh, and thus spoke Zarathustra. If that's the way you say it, but I haven't read those in a in a while now.
1: Yeah, Zar Zarathustra is hard to get into, um, and Genealogy of morale- Morality isn't so much like an existentialist work. It's more of like a psychological history right. of religion. But my I'm a huge fan of Nietzsche's works. I love his books and everything, and um, but I think of all of them, the one that has helped me out the most and that I hold most near and dear to me is the gay science. And it's just in a summary, like everything we've been talking about, it's all just about finding like joy in life, not looking too deep at the things in themselves and just sort of, you know, skating across life. Um, just on the surface and being light and carefree and not at all sort of like staring into the void, which if, if there was a capital sin for Nietzsche, it would be staring into the void of human suffering. And it's just like a complete affirmation of life. And, um, that's what I have to say about the gay
0: science for now. But so would you a say book... that's the starting point for Nietzsche? If you were to read Nietzsche again? If you were to do it all over again?
1: Well, yeah. Let's just say that if I ever see somebody on the Nietzsche subreddit asking <laughs> like, what what the first book of Nietzsche to read, I recommend that they read the gay science.
0: I think I made a mistake like, by reading Genealogy of Morals first.
1: Yeah, I think you did. And <laughs> if, if you're going to read Zarathustra, read it after you already know like everything there is to know about Nietzsche. Otherwise it's just going to like completely befuddle you. Like it is a good summary of all of his important ideas. Um,
0: It was very story. But you just
1: kind of already have to like understand a lot about the philosophy going in. Oh, but here's something to say about the gay science because the gay science is also the first introduction of um, the eternal reoccurrence, which is a very, Important idea to Nietzsche, and it's a good sort of paradigm for viewing your your life in the context of existentialism. And it's the idea that like, um, you should live your life essentially as if you were going to have to live live it over, live your entire life over, including all the minutia exactly as it happened um an infinite amount of times. Nietzsche didn't actually believe uh that you know the universe was going to keep repeating. I mean, it could. We no way to ever know. And right. Nietzsche did kind of play around with the idea of making of this as like some metaphysical truth, but Nietzsche's very opposed to metaphysics and in this note where he sort of suggested it, he kind of crossed it out and wrote like a grocery list over it. So you can tell he didn't really take that idea seriously. And it was more of just sort of a reference with which to judge how you're living your life. Like if you're living your life, um, such that you'd be like fine living it over exactly again, then you're doing something right. And, if the idea of like having to live your life over exactly as it is horrifies you then that should probably be a wake-up call
0: that uh, it's it's strangely personally it, it causes me a little bit of dread like i mean this this gets into a realm of like i guess like psychology and optimism but like would you say like to live your life, or to want to live your life the same way you lived it the first time? I suppose if you if you'd have to do it all over again exactly, would you, would you say that entails more of changing your mindset or doing things differently? Because a lot of the time, I guess people talk about you know there's a lot of self help garbage, so to speak. Yeah, changing your mindset
1: is really the only way that positive change can happen. I I don't see somebody suddenly changing the way they live their life without a serious paradigm shift right. in the way they they think about their life because your mindset is the the fount from which your actions spring forth from. And of course like in everybody's life there's going to be stuff that like you regret and it's like you just cringe thinking about it and you could easily be like, "Well, I wouldn't want to live that over," but you kind of <laughs> have to sublimate your individuality a little bit and think about the greater scheme like yeah that you know how cringy I was in my early teenage years I wouldn't want to do that again but what if I lived my way my life in such a way that this early cringiness helped me in some way make some important realizations and bloom into a flower it kind of kind of justifies itself it's, in the it's, end. And and that's the point. It's not about like wanting to live each individual action over again and, you know, wanting to enjoy whole. every single thing you do. Like there's still, even with the right mindset, you're still going to make like a lot of mistakes. There's going to be a lot of things that you don't like or don't regret, but it's about living your way in such a life that the end product, that the the life you end up living and the mindset you end up having justifies it all.
0: Right. And, and so I suppose you're right in that the only way that you can really do that is by changing your mindset, because, you know, you have the classic e- examples, whether it be, you know, modern philosophy or um, s- specifically, I guess, old psychology is like notions of hedo- like hedonic treadmills and, and never being able to achieve true happiness, no matter how far you climb, like whether or not it be you know socially and so on and so forth what do you what do you make of the fact that do you would you say that i guess happiness in a sense isn't is a it's definitely an internal process but do you believe that it comes externally at all (sighs) like is it easy to be happier in in a given set of circumstances i don't think that's a controversial way to frame it
1: It's easier to be happier in a certain set of circumstances. Um, like, like, yes, but maybe not in the way that you think, like if if you're talking about just like having like a perfect ideal environment where, you know, you just never feel any negative emotions. I think that would be conducive to unhappiness, like long term. like the way I'm, I mean, happiness is sort of being at peace with everything that happens like when once you and this ties back to rejecting the notion of of free will and and determinism everything happens in my view exactly as it happens if if things could have happened differently than than they would have so there's there's no use really pining away for like what ifs and like what could have been things will happen the way they happen and you just ha- kind of have to fall in
0: love with the whole. With, with the happenings, as it were. Yeah. And um, would you say you're a determinist then, or is that not what that entails? For, for a layman, yeah, I,
1: I think it would probably be fair to call me a determinist. I, but I really don't think about free will. It's just not something that factors into my quote-unquote decisions you know, if, if right. there are decisions that I, you know, can freely make, I just understand that even the bad things that happen again, if, if it could have happened different differently, it would have. And the fact that it happened the way it did meant that there was no other way the cards could have fallen. And by being able to make peace with that just brings me tremendous like serenity, more, more than just having nonstop pleasure and like a comfortable environment, you know, being able to take the hard knocks in stride and, you know, understanding the necessity, but also sort of trying to turn it into something positive, you know, trying to see like a lesson in every bad thing too. It just, that's way more important than just the set of circumstances are cultivating like a, a fun environment.
0: So, so it's a perception that self growth is possible. Yeah. Because there are a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, psychology that would say that in, in a way, if you look at behaviorism, that says ex- circumstances are entirely what dictates uh, one's ability to f- flourish uh, internally or not potentially.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that might be very true for some people but depending on your mindset y- your mindset extremely influences how you're able to interpret or internalize things that happen to you
0: right so if you yeah.
1: have if you have like the wrong mindset then like yeah the hard knocks can ruin you but if not you know you're e- you're either able to like make peace with it and and not let it weigh you down or it could be the impetus for personal growth.
0: Right. Do, do you have, I guess, any any other favorite works of existentialism or or reading list stuff in terms of existentialist works, besides, I guess, outside of Nietzsche or just even outside of the Gay Science? Because, I mean, yeah. obviously, you, I mean, obviously, you're a fan of all of his work. I assume. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think Zarathustra is like an incredibly positive work.
1: I think that's that's great. But again, you have to have like a really solid. Nietzsche uh, understanding of Nietzsche. I would not recommend having that be your first or second or even third book by Nietzsche. You kind of have to know what you're getting into. Um, But outside of the Nietzsche canon, one book that I wanted to talk about and this is a book I read over the summer I thought was really good. It's not strictly a work of philosophy or existentialism but it's, it's kind of steeped in it. And it's called Roadside Picnic. It was published in... Let me see... In the 70s, in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, by two Russian brothers, um, the Strugatsky Strugatsky brothers, and that the fact that they're Russian, living in the Soviet Union, definitely explains the philosophical nature <laughs> of the book. Because depressed Russian people have a long history of making very influential and important existentialist works. But roadside right. picnic, um, and some section of the audience might be interested to know that this is the inspiration for the stalker video games, it's it's a very loose inspiration. The games have like very little to do besides the basic premise. So any, yeah, huge spoiler warning, I'm going to spoil the the themes and stuff. So if you don't want to spoil, just don't listen to me talk about roadside picnic, but basically the premise of the plot is at some point, you know, in the modern day, some aliens crash landed into planet earth, several sites around the world and as quickly as they came they left and the story the the stalker games you know feature mutants and, and aliens and stuff the book features none of that basically it's all about following the life of this one stalker and stalker is the term for people who go into these crash sites or zones and just you know steal scrap and alien tech to make a living selling it to the black market. So it just follows around the life of a single stalker. And he, as he tries to support his girlfriend and daughter and just it explores the way like governments are managing or mismanaging the zones and, and like what the significance of human existence is in the face of this alien encounter. And it's a very depressing book. It's not like super positive. Um, but the gist is, and this is where the name comes from, like humanity at the point in the book, several years after the crash landing has been able to use like a lot of the tech to make like self perpetuating like batteries and stuff Mm -hmm. and just all kinds of tech that, you know, on a material level makes people's lives better, I guess. But the the, the title comes from the idea that all this stuff that we've or humans have used as, you know, their modern day tech, it's just garbage to the aliens. Like Earth was just a pit stop. The aliens came and Earth was one leg of the journey and they just stopped for a little bit and had like a roadside picnic and then just picked up and left. Like it's basically the equivalent of if, you know, a bunch of young hooligans got their cars and, you know, pulled off on some area of like a highway and they just had a party and there was like, they played like really loud music and they spilled like motor oil and they left like garbage behind, like the insects living there would be terrified, you know, and and, like that sort of, and we're the insects like in this situation, right? it, It just the book underlines, the ultimate like meaningless of humanity in the grand scheme of things. And even though people's lives have materially gotten better, because the tech definitely does help people, there's still poverty, there's still hunger, there's still oppression. The institutions, you know, the governments that have been, you know, using this technology and, and researching it, they haven't really led to any measurable increase in human happiness. So it's also an indictment of bureaucracies and, and governments and institutions and stuff. And, the, and they don't really help the people with their solutions. Their solutions are, are band-aids at best. And so it's it's very depressing in that aspect. Humans are meaningless, you know, viewed from the impersonal eye of the universe. Right. And from the, you know, whatever these aliens were that just you know crash landed and then left but the very end of the book ha- features the main character stalker going back in one more time and he's trying to find this artifact that's rumored to grant anybody any wish they want and he's got some young stalker and and this experienced stalker who's the main character kind of knows that in order to get to this artifact there's this strange alien phenomena that is like fatal. So he kind of goes in with the idea of he's going to sacrifice this younger, less experienced stalker. So he can, so then once like the trap is deactivated temporarily, he can go and get the artifact. And, um, the young, he asks like the young stalker, like what he plans to wish for. And he's like, well, I'm going to flip to the back of the book. So I, uh, know the exact quote because it is pretty good um he said uh he's gonna wish for happiness free for everyone and let no one be forgotten and of course the stalker is really cynical about it like you're just like some young whippersnapper you don't know what life's about at all and so the plan goes as as he intended the uh he sacrifices the younger stalker so he can deactivate the trap and get to the artifact and then once he has the artifact in his hands um he suddenly can't think of like a good wish like you know his his wife is impoverished and his daughter has these strange mutations um from his con his experiences in the zone and she's like becoming less and less human and so at right. the very end Like the only thing he can think to wish is exactly what the young boy who he sacrificed was happiness, free for everyone and let no one be forgotten. And that's how the book ends. And I dunno, it's, it's a very existentialist work to me because it shows that institutions are not really something we want to put our faith in. And we shouldn't really try to be looking for the inherent worth of humanity because there is, none we need to find things that give us value like family and and friends and if you want to make the world like a better place then you know that's like a worthy thing to sort of want to do even though it's not necessarily the right thing to do i'm not sure if that makes any sense
0: no no it it makes sense but it's it's uh it's very interesting, and I, I think it sounds abrasive that that trying to make the world a better place might not be the right thing to do. And, I just mean that in the sense that, like, there is right. no right thing to do. It no, can no, be that, right that, for you, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, at the end of the day, like, I mean, even even in sort of, um, I guess, a cause and effect sense, it, if you try to make the world a better place, even in the in, even in the way that you think the world would be a better place, sometimes you really have no control over the. The trajectory of your your actions i I suppose like there Mm -hmm. there are great missteps in history that occur uh from people trying to make the world better Mm -hmm. they go terribly wrong especially govern especially governments yeah if if you believe that they're trying to make the world better but i think joseph's back and i think he could probably give a, a clearer definition of absurdism than i could uh if he wants to hop in
2: yeah for sure um I think the easiest way that I've been able to wrap my mind around the, the clear definition of absurdism, specifically from Camus, the kind of champion of absurdism would be this, you know, for Camus, we existed in a meaningless world there, there was no greater definitive meaning that existed in the world you know, post the rise of science and whatnot, as Christianity declined in its beliefs. Um, So we exist in this undefined world with no definitive meaning that's greater than our own. And yet humans still search for that meaning in this meaningless world. And it's the conflict that comes from searching for a definitive inherent meaning in a meaningless world that brings rise to what he calls the absurd. And it's that it's the searching for meaning in a meaningless world. uh, I I would put the the pin on absurdism
0: is. Would would Camus define, I guess, absurdism as, as searching for meaning in a meaningless, meaningless world or one where we can't find the meaning, even if it exists.
2: Hmm. Because, because I, I think it's, I think part of it is that I think he, to, to most degrees, I think he would agree that the world is mostly meaningless, at least to our perspectives. I mean, I don't I don't know if he would say definitively the world is without meaning. But I think he would say that human beings haven't been able to find it yet.
0: Uh, yeah, or, or that they wouldn't be able to find it. Yeah. Alex, is there anything you think about that?
1: Well, I want to ask Joseph um, what he thinks... Well, well, do you think that Camus thinks the search for meaning or trying to find meaning is fruitful? Is is that what he wants you to do? Or does he think it's kind of pointless to try to search because you're not going to find any inherent meaning?
2: I think it's a little bit multifaceted. I think his search for meaning, he really emphasizes search for meaning in one's individual life through the productive strides and trying to find what's meaningful to you as the individual. It's a large emphasis on the individual's lives over an inherent meaning in the universe. I think he would say that if you were searching for an inherent meaning in the universe, um, maybe you would be taking a leap of faith to do so. You would be kind of stretching it. And I think he would probably think that that's somewhat unproductive, but I think he, should, he, he really emphasizes that you should focus on your own individual meaning as a person Mm -hmm. and finding meaning for your own life as an individual. Mm -hmm. I have a very
1: imperfect knowledge of Camus and I haven't read any of his works, but I am vaguely aware of one quote from, I think the myth of Sisyphus where he says, you know, even one must imagine imagine that that Sisyphus Sisyphus is happy. happy. So do you think it would be fair to say that for Camus, um, The point of life is just is just the journey it's not actually you know you shouldn't actually try to find meaning but the journey to find meaning is what makes life worth it
2: yeah i think you would say that the meaning is in the journey and in the striving to complete one's tasks as they go through life and finding enjoyment and productivity throughout that enjoying the journey yeah i Mm -hmm. think is a large emphasis of the meaning that one could find in their individual life
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's, like, very representative of Nietzsche and and Kierkegaard's views, too, because, like I was saying about the Ubermensch, Nietzsche doesn't think that's what everybody should be trying to do. He doesn't even think, like, the Ubermensch is possible, but his his striving towards the Ubermensch um, is what makes it worth it. And for Kierkegaard, um, the leap of faith, or the concept of the leap of faith is really important because, again, he doesn't believe in this, like, external, absolute... God he believes in a personal god so he doesn't really think that like you should be worried about like what your if what your conscious your conscience tells you to do is the right or absolutely moral thing to do um you just have to take a leap of faith and, and follow your conscience and your intuition
0: in in a weird way though so um Kierkegaard is kind of regarded within the discipline of absurdism, and and Joseph you can correct me if i'm wrong but I think he's regarded as kind of the original absurdist while Camus kind of talked about as the popularizer. And um, I guess sort of the problem arises between Camus and, and Kierkegaard uh, where um, Camus would say, and and Alex, I'm not sure if this is contrary to what you were saying, but Camus would say that like there are, there are co- certain cop-outs that are the wrong way to go about handling, I guess, existential dread or existential problems and like one would be physical suicide which is just avoiding the problem altogether mm-hmm. and the, and the, and the other would be uh, you know philosophical suicide which is the adoption of uh religion or, or or concepts presented to you by culture or society
1: um no i think that's in line with what i was saying i think at right. the very beginning i was talking about a sort of like true spirituality as opposed to religion and true spirituality is just accepting like the, the mystery of life, uh, as right. God and not, you know, assuming that there are any concrete values, that's the kind of spirituality
0: right.
1: Kierkegaard has. And religion is just, you know, accepting the, somebody else's values, locking yourself into a certain view of, um, viewing the world and true spirituality is just finding happiness in the journey.
0: So, so Kierkegaard is completely against uh, kind of any any spirituality that is not true spirituality, right? Yeah, any kind of spirituality that's not like completely personal.
1: Okay. If okay. you if you're accepting somebody else's idea of God, you're doing it wrong. Um, but I have a question about Camus and uh, Mitchell. You said that he doesn't consider himself an existentialist and doesn't want to be considered part of the movement why is that what and it, if that's true he he shouldn't be considered an existentialist like why what what is his divergence
0: in 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 my understanding uh, his problem with existentialism is that he talks about um, he thinks that the sort of what absurdism entails in terms of what you should do is fundamentally different than what existentialism is, says you should do. Because existentialism, like, you were, like we were talking about earlier, doesn't entail that you should do anything, right? Necessarily. Mm-hmm. Whereas absurdism has sort of imp- imperatives, like don't kill yourself, don't blindly, don't have blind faith, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Whereas I, I don't know if existentialism has those same, I guess, entailments. And And Joseph, feel free to add to this. But um, so one of the differences is, like Joseph was mentioning, the, the sort of conflict with trying to find meaning that gives rise to the absurd. Um, the, the big problem with that is that in existentialism as a whole, there's not that conflict with the absurd where that drives Camus to make those, imper- those statements of somebody's imperatives, right? Would you, Would you say that is accurate? I would say that's accurate, yeah. Are there any problems with, with that, do you think, Alex? Um, yeah, you ha- I'll have to repeat what you said. I, I didn't hear that. Okay, so um, in, in in essence, Camus' problem with, I guess, being considered an existentialist is that absurdism, in particular, has certain imperatives about how how one should act, whereas existentialism doesn't necessarily have imperatives. And that's because in existentialism there's not necessarily that concept of the absurd uh, as kind of defined by Camus, which gives rise to imperatives like not giving into blind faith or not uh, not committing suicide, whereas existentialism really doesn't entail any sort of behavior on one's part.
1: Yeah, you're right. I just, you could make the argument um, that existentialism actually does have an imperative You know, if it's telling you to find your own meaning and do your own thing. But that's, that's still sort of a, a philosophical gotcha. in right. um, in my opinion, and yeah, I, I don't think that there is such an, an imperative to like, you know, not kill yourself. Cause like, if you, if you truly don't find like worth living, you know, I mean, right. I, why I'm not going to try to stop you. Like I might try to like convince you otherwise, but it's your life. You can do with it what you want
0: right and and i guess sort of one of the other differences between absurdism and existentialism is that uh absurdism sort of has this vision of in, in a sense just by the framework that it lays out it wouldn't say Camus definitely wouldn't say it's objective progress but he would say that coming to terms with such ideas are progress whereas i'm not sure existentialism necessarily entails that uh there's any sort of progress to be had in in personal development by just uh, ex- accepting that existence precedes essence. Do you get what I'm saying? There's sort of um, not necessary. Uh, Camus would probably, you know, argue that it's not necessarily ethical. But he he makes some metaphysical claims about what absurdism in- entails for behavior that can be good or bad. Yeah, I think. I read an article. And
1: I, I have a very poor understanding of Camus, but it seems like he was opposed to violence in general. Yeah. Like he he lived in uh, French Algeria, uh, yeah, Algeria, I believe, and as opposed to like other existentialists like uh, Sartre and um yeah. He he thought that like you shouldn't like use violence to you know resist or rebel or anything, and just you should. I don't know try to find like compromise in like the middle ground.
0: So so also I guess one thing that Camus kind of has like a, 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 it's a subtext for sure and this could be reading too far into it and uh, I'm not sure if Joseph will agree with this. So Camus spent a little bit of his life politically uh advocating for the abolishment of the death penalty uh which is kind of like one of the central issues in the stranger. And the reason w- why I suppose is that violence and um i guess imp- state imposed death and so on and so forth a- anything that does that there there just happen to be uh kind of entailments of absurdism that make those actions bad to limit to limit another person's uh, i guess ability to grow, so to speak,
1: mhm, yeah, I would say that Camus might also think that um somebody who is sentenced to death, you know, some murderer with no empathy, he might think that they've been sort of like failed by society. Yeah. And, and the reason that somebody is acting this way is because they just haven't bought into the game.
0: Definitely. So, so
1: to speak. And, and it's just kind of like punishing different opinions. I'm not a huge fan of that take, but like, I think that's right. what, Camus would say
0: that that's sort of a dichotomy where him and Sartre diverge. Like we, we talked about sort of before, before we were recording that, you know, if you, if you're a a, a Sartre fan uh, entirely, that it it may arise that Sartre, Sartre can be used to justify the fact that like a slave is entirely responsible for lifting themselves out of slavery. Whereas I suppose Camus would say that the, the, you know, the system of, of reality has failed them. And, and and so Camus is very anti-oppression, um, whereas I'm not sure, uh, I guess existentialism necessarily entails that. I mean, definitely not Sartre, uh, Sartre's brand of existentialism. Uh, whereas, whereas for, so for Camus, the duty is on not only the individual to progress, but society to give the individual the ability to progress, right? So a good example is like, towards towards the end of the stranger there's a, a a minister uh who keeps coming to the death row and keeps trying to force christianity upon uh merceau which is the who is the uh, the protagonist and in essence what camus is arguing through his character against the the minister is that it's not it's not society's job, whether it be through religion or through the death penalty, to to stop the individual from growing by committing by by sort of encouraging them to commit philosophical suicide through religious uh, uh, kind of adherence, right? Like blind faith, or whether it be through completely physically uh, making it impossible for an individual to change uh, through death.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. I'm not sure if this is super relevant, but I know that like in the case of, uh, French colonialism in, uh, Algeria, Camus kind of made enemies on both sides because his, his like strict adherence to like nonviolence and everybody should just stop fighting and get along more or less. He alienated both like the people who are in favor of French French, imperialism. And he was, yeah. And he was, um, also hated by, uh, People who were like, "No, colonialism should be rejected, and uh, the native Algerians should overthrow their French colonial government."
0: Right, and I'm not. I'm not ultimately sure. I'm not an Algerian historian, but I I, I believe that the the French withdrew, uh, maybe nonviolently to a certain extent. But yeah, uh, there, there's definitely commentary on the Stranger just on that fact alone, because one, it's said in Algeria, but two. The person that, that uh, I guess um, his protagonist kills is an Algerian. Uh, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's why he's sentenced to death. So in a sense, throughout his trial, he's, he's struggling to deal with the fact that it's not necessarily his fault that in the heat of passion that he killed someone, but that it was still wrong for him to kill someone right perhaps and, and that could be a misreading joseph what do you think about that i think it i think
2: it ties in really well because with camus specific like views on like uh revolt and rebellion against like an oppressive regime he he walks a very tight line between the idea of the spirit of a revolution and the metaphysical idea of A party revolting or rebelling against an oppressive union, but then the actual revolution itself taking up arms and fighting against them and causing like unjust suffering in the course of it. So I I think he's probably making a point there about the unjust killing of this person in reference to his ideas about revolution, but that was probably pretty proto to his ideas about revolt because. I don't think he had really talked about revolution in like written form before he wrote The Stranger.
0: Right. Well, Alex, do you have anything to add to that? No,
1: I've uh, I've said everything I really have to say.
0: You got anything to add on existentialism? I think we're at about time. Nope. All right. Well, Alex, I want to thank you for you know coming on. It's been a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah uh, it was a real pleasure getting to discuss
1: one of my favorite topics with you guys and uh thank you for inviting me on the podcast i appreciate that uh you thought i'd be a good person to talk about this subject with
0: it's no problem and uh, also i want to thank joseph for coming in for uh just the absurdist i guess conversation there
2: absolutely it was wonderful to sit in and listen
0: yeah i mean yeah i i appreciate it honestly i didn't know much about existentialism before but even even after reading but i i think that you through this conversation helped me learn a little bit more and i think um that's what's in a in a sense most important to me but uh, hopefully hopefully listeners can get a little bit of that knowledge from you or at least get a good place to start learning about existentialism in particular thank you all right
1: all right well thank you and uh goodbye all right, this is
0: a real if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us at industryplant at industryplant.co. See you in two weeks.